According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in First Peter chapter 1. We'll pick up where we left off on Wednesday. In fact, we should wrap this up here this morning, our study on the prize. This is a doctoral study that's come out of Philippians chapter 3, and before we move on to the last paragraph of Philippians chapter 3, I wanted to take some time to make sure that we uh, uh, don't forget the crowns that we're reaching forward to, the crown of righteousness, the crown of, of uh, exaltation, the different crowns of uh, life and glory, the incorruptible crown that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is uh, a part of the uh, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead imperative from Philippians chapter 3. And we should be doing this. We absolutely should be doing this. I've had some people say, oh, I don't want any rewards or I'm not serving Jesus for the rewards. And, 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 and I, while I understand the sentiment and I can appreciate the desire to be humble and to not, uh, not desire the reward if, if they think it's an arrogance thing, but it's not an arrogance thing. We should be reaching forward. We're commanded to reach forward. And, uh, and so I hope that we're clear on this as we, as we look at these prizes. All right, God of spirit, He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. So let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that any of our carnality from the technology issues is confessed and uh, that we're in fellowship for the Word of God. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the blessing we have to assemble. We thank you for the grace that you have provided that allows us to be here, the freedom that we have to be here this morning. We pray for those who could not be with us this morning because of health concerns and the sickness uh, that's kept them in bed or kept them at home. Father, uh, be faithful, provide at the next available opportunity. And we just commit to you now our time to study and our time to grow today that you would open the eyes of our understanding, Father. I thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so uh, Wednesday we wrapped up the last of the four developments. You might recall we were dealing with uh, different uh, rewards based upon dispensations, based upon the promises made to angels, to Gentiles, to Israel, to the church, and recognizing that we end up with a lot of confusion if we try to blend those or if we mix and match those in any way. Uh, we are not entitled to Israel's rewards, and they have particular promises related to their status as the covenant nation, and they have earthly land. They have promises related to an earthly land inheritance, and we don't have that. Our citizenship is in heaven. In fact, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, and our inheritance and our reward and everything we're looking forward to in glory uh, is separate from what Israel is looking forward to in their rewards. And so uh, that was essentially why we went through the angelic dispensation, the Gentile dispensation, the Jewish dispensation, and the millennial kingdom, which is by and large Israel's reward, what they're looking forward to. Daniel was promised that he would uh, go his way and, and, and die, and then he would be raised again for his allotted portion at the end of the age. And that's what they have to look forward to. And so in the church uh, idea of the overcomer rewards of Revelation 2 and 3. We were looking at these and why they're connected. We are connected to Christ positionally. Christ is the overcomer. 
We are overcomers by faith in Christ. And so all of those seven promises of reward are rewards for Jesus, rewards that we receive in Christ. And then we have the various crowns. And depending on how you want to outline these, I think it's not wrong to outline them, you know, one through five. Or you can take that first one as a general umbrella term, the fact uh, that we that uh, Olympic athletes are racing for a perishable crown, but we are racing for an imperishable crown. And we can look at the First uh, Corinthians nine passage as being a general passage. And I think it's probably best to think of it that way, to think of rewards in general, and then to take these specific rewards, exaltation, righteousness, life, and glory, as being the four crowns that are mentioned for for victorious church age believers today. In any event, whether you want to count them as four or five. Uh, I think that's uh, it's valid either way related to that. Now, having come to all that, we're ready this hour for our conclusion. And as a summary conclusion statement, I want to say first and foremost, do not confuse inheritance with reward. Do not in- confuse inheritance with reward. They're different terms. They're different terms with different uh, consequences. They're different applications as it relates to the fact your inheritance is on the basis of who you are, the family you're in, the father you have, right? And, uh, you know, if you have a, a better father or a worse father or a richer father or a poorer father or what, what, what you may have, that's going to totally determine your inheritance. Uh, well, thankfully, we have God the Father, and we are fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. And so, uh, since He is the heir of all things, uh, we're in for a pretty good inheritance, are we not? That's uh, it's a marvelous place to be, and I'm looking forward to that. Uh, reward, on the other hand, is is a different matter. Reward is something that is awarded, that is something that is uh, uh, distributed on the basis of a criteria. And so you can earn them or deserve them or measure up or not measure up. You can forsake them. You can throw them away. And that's quite a bit different than an inheritance, which is incorruptible, undefiled, reserved in heaven for you. And that's why I asked you to turn to 1 Peter 1, 4, and this is where we're going to pick up from, uh, from where we left it. 1 Peter chapter 1, and the key uh, item there is in verse 4. We can... Uh, grab some surrounding context here. But blessed be, verse 3 says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, and you think about why the resurrection is, is inseparable from our salvation, why it all goes together. As Paul said, if, if we if trusted in Christ for this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied, that the resurrection is inseparable from our salvation. The fact that we walk in the newness of life is inseparable from our salvation. And so Peter agrees with, with everything that Paul discusses there in these, uh, in these things. So he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. So this is our birth, this is our status, and this is our position in Christ as saved ones. A birth that cannot be undone. You don't retroactively change the circumstances of your birth. Uh, Whatever it was is what it was, all right? So if it was 3.23 in the afternoon on a Tuesday in uh, January of a particular year, then that's what it was, all right? At, uh, I don't remember, a group health hospital in Seattle, Washington, or Swedish hospital. One of those. Group Health. Matt was a Swedish. All right. Group Health Hospital in Seattle, Washington. And so, I mean, it is what it is. And, uh, and, and so my circumstances are what they are. Matt's was his. Mary was over in Bellevue somewhere. 
Um, Elizabeth was born in San Francisco of all places. All right? You can't change it. Once it's done, it's done. And, and so here we are in the family of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And we are sons. We are sons and daughters. We are His children. And so, again, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And here's the purpose clause now in verse 4. To obtain an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So we have the past completed action of our birth, of our salvation. We now have the present reality of our living hope that abides from our salvation uh, onward, never ends. And then we have the future anticipation of what it is we will receive when we depart from mortality and enter into glory. And this is what it's all about. So it is, uh, it's an inheritance, uh, it's imperishable, it's undefiled, will not fade away. So unlike rewards, rewards which can be thrown away, rewards which can be lost, they can be forsaken, you can be disqualified. Paul talked about being disqualified, and that was the, the, first, Peter, or the first Corinthians 9 passage where it talks about preaching to others and then being disqualified. So you can't be disqualified from an inheritance. You can be from a reward. And I'm, I'm going to say this repeatedly over and over again because there's books out there that blend the terms and that just irritates me. They try to conflate the issue of inheritance with reward. And that, uh, that's a problem. All right. Reserved in heaven for you. Well, you're not in heaven yet. You're in heaven positionally and your inheritance is a positional inheritance But at some point, the positional will become uh, literal when you are absent from the body and at home with the Lord. And so when you literally get to heaven along with your positional place there, then you will literally see that this inheritance has been waiting for you the whole time. Notice verse 5, who are protected by the power of God. Notice the eternal security of the believer here. It's not up to you or your power or your faithfulness. It's the power of God that protects you through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So when you're saved by faith, this protection is applied, and here you have it. You cannot lose your eternal life. And that's, the, of course, phase three salvation, the use that talks about when we get to, uh, get to glory. We get to be in heaven. That's the final uh, aspect of salvation in our experience. Ready to be revealed in the last time. And so in this, you greatly rejoice. Inheritance is something that that you keep fixed before you. It's the joy set before you, just as it was for Jesus. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. You say, well, it doesn't seem like a little while to me. (laughs) It seems like I'm approaching the fourth anniversary of this test. Why uh, is that a little while? Yeah. You know, Sarah waited till 90 till she had her baby. How long are we waiting? All right, it's just a little while. And even if it's 100 years, even if it's you know, however long we should live, that's just a little while compared to eternity. The momentary light affliction is not worthy to be compared to that eternal weight of glory. And so it says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary. Let me tell you something. It is, <laughs> okay? And it's a given. First class, assumed to be true. You have been distressed by various trials. Don't think that testing is optional. It is not optional. That's the fallacy that comes about in those problematic reward books I was telling you about. They tend to think that, well, if we suffer, then we will reign. Well, some of us don't suffer. We all suffer. 
When one member suffers, everybody suffers. Yes, some suffer more, but we all suffer. Our position is a position of suffering, and our position is a pos- our eternal position is a position of reigning. We want to be clear on that also. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You think that's optional? I believe the Father is determined to glorify Jesus Christ for all eternity, which means the Father has promised to test you and me because this is what results in the glory of Jesus Christ. Praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Although you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. This is our present position, our living hope, our experience in the Christian walk, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Again, phase three salvation when we're face to face with the Lord. So inheritance is fixed and undiminished. It is what it is. It's based on who your father is. It's based on our position in Christ. And we don't want to confuse that with reward. Now reward is conditioned on faithfulness. Reward can be magnified. Reward can be diminished accordingly, all right? And so on the basis of faithfulness, reward can be increased. In fact, it might be that you have 10 and the guy that had one, what he had is going to be taken away from him and given to you because reward can be magnified. Reward can be increased. Reward can be decreased on the basis of faithlessness, whereby the one who had one, even the one that he had is taken away and given to the one who has ten. <clears throat> Matthew thirteen twelve. Most of these we've seen already, so this will be just a, a brief review for us. Matthew 13, Kingdom of Heaven parables. So um, we have the parable of the sower in verses 3 through 9. He who has ears, let him hear. Boy, that reminds me of something, doesn't it? And the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. Well, that doesn't seem fair. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Well, that doesn't seem fair. That especially doesn't seem fair. Wait a minute. See, and this is why you and I are living in a very interesting generation. This whole dissatisfaction about why things aren't fair. And why is it that a certain percentage of the population has a certain percentage of the, of the wealth and we all should be equal. We all should have the same. Why do the rich get richer? And then why are the poor getting poor? And why is it? Well, it's because, quite honestly, the politics of envy is powerful. <laughs> and you can motivate an awful lot of people if they think they've been ripped off, they've been cheated, they, that it's unfair, that somehow they have more because they took it away from me. I should have more. And he doesn't need it anyway. I should have it. And all of this. Well, <clears throat> Back to the scriptures, okay, instead of today's philosophy of envy. 
whoever has, to him more shall be given. And this is, uh, this is what it's talking about. And so, <coughs> you know, when, when the one guy goes and he trades and he comes back with 10 and he gets one added to him, that's what this is about. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. So we want to have our eyes open to truth. We don't want to be misled. We don't want to be captivated by uh, worldly philosophies or the wisdom of men. The idea that somehow fairness is the be-all, end-all of, of uh, whatever. It's just, it's just a huge idolatry factor that is driving so many things today. So there's the pattern on that. Over to uh, Matthew 25. I don't think there's anything else I want to see related to this chapter. All right, so over to Matthew 25 then. And uh, again, the principle that was stated in Matthew 13 is restated here, and it's restated here specifically in the context of reward. And uh, this is where, if you back up to uh, all the way to verse 14, you'll notice this man was about to go on a journey, so he called his slaves and trusted his possessions to them. And to the one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Now pay attention very quickly, okay? Because everything is about the master. He owns everything in this paragraph. He owns everything in this chapter. He even owns the servants, given that they're slaves. So he called his own slaves. That means slave number one, slave number two, slave number three. He owns those guys also. And so if he's giving five to the first slave and two to the second slave and one to the third slave, he's giving his stuff to his slaves. And that's his sovereignty at work. And so two of them get busy and one of them is a slug. Okay? And uh, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with him and gained five more. And the one who had received the two talents gained two more. So they both got busy with what they were given. But he who received one talent went away, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. And uh, that's the one that gets taken away. And so after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. After a long time. Well, why did he take so long? (laughs) Again, text doesn't say, and it's none of our business really. It's his business. He's the one doing this. And, uh, you know, He probably was doing other more important things than dealing with these guys. We don't know. But when he comes, it's time to settle accounts. Just because things are delayed doesn't mean there's no accountability. And so the one who received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. And this is what's expected. This is kind of a pattern for us, if you will, at the judgment seat of Christ. What else can we say? at the judgment seat of Christ when our work is being evaluated, saying, here it is. This is what you provided. This is what I did. And, you know, in grace as unto the Lord, whatever he wants to do after that is his business. And uh, notice, unlike the third guy, these first two guys are not manipulative. 
They're not um, disgruntled. They're not dissatisfied with who this guy is or things they don't like about him. In fact, they have nothing at all to say about their master. He just said, you entrusted five talents to me. I have gained five more talents. And what is he doing? He's giving all 10 of them back to the master because they belong to the master. He belongs to the master. So his master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Notice it's not even his own joy. It's the master's joy that this uh, guy gets to enter into. Same pattern here. And now in the process of this, by the way, we don't realize uh, until you get to verse 28 when he says, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents, that he, the, the, he left him with those ten talents. The slave was offering them back to the master saying, here's your ten talents. And the master said, you keep those. Enter into the joy of your master. So he still, slave number one, still has the ten talents. The one who had received two talents, you notice in verse 22, he came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. And the master doesn't seize them. He leaves them in the man's hands there. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. So it's the same pattern. It's just proportional. It's just a different scale. God calls upon different believers to do different things at different times. Just stay faithful with what it is you're called to do. That's the pattern. And there's, uh, there's the issue there. You know, Lewis is waiting for a pulpit to open. That's, that's God's good pleasure. So stay faithful where you are. Be about your father's business here and now. When you're faithful with little things, he'll entrust you with greater things. Or not. That's his good pleasure. All right? He, he may know better than we do. Well, he does know better than we do. I'd say there's over a 90% chance that God knows better than we do. All right. So, first two slaves, faithful with what they've been given. They got busy, they were productive, they were entrusted. That's the key. Entrusted. And so they were faithful to that trust. Then the third guy, and this poor guy, I'm just going to call him Bob because I think he's pretty knuckleheaded. And so the one who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Well, what's that about? Where does that even come from? Why do you care? You know, why are you describing your master anyway? Why, what, you know, are you the evaluator of masters? What do you, I mean, he's a hard man? Like what? Compared to other masters of other slaves? What, what is this? Is this, well, what it is, is dissatisfaction clearly. You're a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. Well, wait a minute. That's not true. I mean, technically it's true, but it's not true. He did sow. He, he, he did scatter seed. He just used his slaves to do it. But see, this is what comes about. This is why the labor theory of value is so satanic. This is why uh, the rebellion against authority is, is unbiblical. 
this uh, grumbler guy. I mean, how much work did he do? He didn't even, he just buried the talent anyway. It's not like he was a hard worker. But I imagine he was probably the, uh, probably the union rep. I suspect that he, uh, the loudest voices are typically the <laughs> instigators of the dissatisfaction who did the least amount of work in the whole crew. All right. Reaping where you did not sow. And so, you know, here's the master who invested everything, who risked everything. It was his land, they were his slaves, they were his talents, totally at risk, including entrusting one to this knucklehead that went and buried it and didn't give any increase to what he was doing. All right. You're a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where... So, I was afraid... I was afraid. What are you afraid for? Was the first slave afraid? Was the second slave afraid? What are you afraid for? I was afraid. See, it's not my fault. I was afraid. And so I went away and I hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. And that doesn't get him out of trouble. That's right. He's only returning one. There was supposed to be an increase. He robbed his master by not working with the talent he was given. Without any profits, without any increase, the, the lack of production is this man's theft. His master answered and said to him, you wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. You knew that I worked through the delegated responsibilities of my servants and you failed. You ought to have at least put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest, whatever artificially low interest rates the Federal Reserve Board had it, (laughs) I guess. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. All right. And so you realize that it's theft. It's theft. When you're uh, goofing off at work, when you're playing Angry Birds and whatever, and you're supposed to be working, and you're stealing from your boss because he's paying you to produce, to be productive, to contribute value to the company's endeavor. And uh, instead of contributing value to the company's endeavor, you're, you're cheating. You're uh, you're you're uh, stealing. And this is what lies behind the concept in verse 29. To everyone who has, more shall be given. He will have an abundance. But the one who does not have, even what he does have, shall be taken away. So reward is conditioned on faithfulness. It is magnified or diminished accordingly. Revelation 3.11. Now you recall... This is where we were on Wednesday and we we're talking about these seven churches and the he that has an ear. And uh, see, I knew that's why I said it familiar. Revelation 3.11. And we have all of these, he that has an ear, let him hear. And then we have the to him who overcomes rewards. And they are rewards, but they're rewards to Christ and us in Christ. We're going to talk about that here in a moment. But then with, uh, we, we looked at all seven of these and we hit something different with respect to um, 
the, the Philadelphia church. We have some other things too. I'm not going to go back and redo all of these. Let's just zero in on verse 11. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. So that no one will take your crown. Okay? And without anything else, just looking at that, what do you think that means? <laughs> kind of seems like uh, I can lose some crowns. Kind of seems like I cannot hold fast. You know, when the imperative is hold fast, what's the consequences of not holding fast? Well, we're told. No one will take your crown. So the consequences are, since it's lest or so that no one, if you don't hold fast, if you, if you volitionally rebel and don't fulfill the imperative, then the consequence is stated. You're gonna, somebody's going to take your crown. Why would somebody take your crown? Because the master is going to take it away from you, wicked, lazy slave, and give it to the one who has ten. Give it to the good and faithful slave. And that's the pattern. Okay, God does not give commands when, uh, for no reason. He does not. Scripture does not speak for no reason. When God gives a command, we obey or we face the consequences. It's all about decisions and consequences. So there we have it. Now, with respect to this, um, why is there some confusion then on some rewards? Well, I think it's because they're not careful in some of these things. Personal. So sub point one: personal rewards are conditioned on the faithfulness of each Christian operating by grace. Personal rewards are conditioned on the faithfulness of each Christian operating by grace. A couple of things to say related to this too, but personal rewards. All right, like the guy that was given five and earned five and, and uh, when then was given an eleventh one by grace. Okay? And in some respects... Maybe the most important words on the screen here are these uh, operating by grace words right here, okay? Because we don't want to lose track of that. That's, uh, that's, then, we, then we put ourselves in a Galatian circumstance where we're saved by grace, but then we legalistically try to work for our rewards in the Christian walk, and we can't do that. If we're saved by grace, we've got to walk by grace. We have to reach forward to rewards by grace, all right? Um, there have been a couple of times in the past few classes where I've talked about earning a crown, earning a reward. And I'm not wrong for using the word earning or deserving, right? As far as what does it take to deserve the crown of life? What does it take to earn the crown of righteousness? Or how, do you, how does your faithfulness qualify to score high enough for the crown of exaltation, for example, or any of these? Because they are conditioned and some do and some don't, it's natural to use terminology such as earned, uh, worked for, uh, deserved, things like that. But what keeps us from, or the, well, I guess what balances that aspect is the recognition that even then, it's still grace that let it happen. It's still grace that provided for it. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And by the grace of God, I do what I do. And so we don't depart from grace. And even the things that we earn, the crowns that we earn, it's still by grace. Absolutely, it's by grace. That the, you know, the guy was given five, he earned five more. Did he earn those five more? 
Or did the grace of God open that opportunity for him so that the grace of God granted five more? See? And so I want to make sure we don't lose track of grace in the whole process. Grace is not a license to laziness. Grace motivates hard work more and more. We want to be clear on that. So those are the personal rewards, okay? Such as the, um, the ones that we saw, um, the incorruptible crown, the crown of exaltation, crown of righteousness, crown of life, crown of glory. Those are personal rewards. And some believers will get those and some believers will not. We're told at the judgment seat of Christ that there are believers who are going to be, you know, buck naked. They're going to be in the resurrection bodies with a robe of white and everything else is consumed by fire. Yet they themselves are saved as though, as though through fire, we're told. We'll see that here in a moment. <clears throat> so personal rewards are conditioned on, faithfulness, on the faithfulness of each Christian operating by grace. I did not put the scripture on the slide. That's terrible. I had intended for us to look at 1 Corinthians 15. So let me just find it in verse 10. 1 Corinthians 15.10, I think, really stresses the grace in action. He talks about the appearances of Jesus to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Notice, grace is not license for laziness. And even when you're working hard, it's still by grace that you're working hard. I labored more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So by the grace of God, we are what we are. By the grace of God, we do what we do. And if we work hard and our five talents gain five talents more, and we work and we earn the crown of life, or the crown of righteousness, or the crown of exaltation, yes, we earned them, but it was by grace that we worked and by grace that we earned them. Does that make sense? And it's hard sometimes because we don't want to use the word earned or deserved connected to grace. Grace is freely given in particular when we haven't earned or deserved anything. See. So we want to be, it's, it's kind of interesting the way this is conditioned and yet still grace every step of the way. Positional rewards. Positional rewards are conditioned on the faithfulness of Christ which makes them guaranteed and undiminished. Positional rewards. And try to understand how I phrase this, because I reworded this like 20 times. <laughs> I hated the way this looked every time I, I... So I finally settled on this. There's personal rewards and there's positional rewards. The positional rewards are by virtue of our position in Christ. The fact that the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, has been baptized into union with Christ. That we are overcomers because we are in Christ. Christ is the one who has overcome the world. And so all of those positional rewards, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. He who overcomes will eat from the, the tree of life. He who overcomes will be a pillar in the temple of my God. 
he who overcomes. Those are the positional rewards. Okay? And they are awarded to Christ, first of all. He's the overcomer. But then to us in Christ. That's why we walk through John 16 and 1 John 5 and, and Revelation 2 and 3. But there's still rewards. And they're still awarded on the basis of faithfulness. The, the, the good news is, though, it's not my faithfulness. It's Christ's faithfulness. The, the personal rewards is my faithfulness. The positional rewards is Jesus' faithfulness. Positional rewards are conditioned on the faithfulness of Christ, which means, since He's infinitely faithful, it makes them guaranteed and undiminished in a way that resembles inheritance. And that's why I think Dillo and other folks get confused. Okay? Because positional rewards look like inheritance. They look like they're imperishable, undefiled, uh, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. They look like even the biggest church-age loser gets these things. Even the, 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 the worst loser in the history of the church that dies the sin and the death still gets the positional rewards of the overcomer in Christ. See? And that bothers some folks. There are some folks that don't accept that, that hate that. So much so that they want to take part of the bride and send the part of the bride to the outer darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay? Not forever. Just for a thousand years. <laughs> okay? You miss the wedding feast. You miss the, the millennial dinner. You can get out of hell or outer darkness when, uh, when the millennium's over and uh, you're, you're, you know, it's like an inverted purgatory. <laughs> you can get out of that weeping and gnashing of teeth for the new heavens and new earth. It's just a horrible, horrible view. Okay? And if you're unfamiliar with these things I'm talking about, great. It means you're not reading those problematic books. <laughs> All right? But if you come across one of those or you read something and you're like, oh, I might go through the weeping and gnashing of teeth. No. You're a church age saint. You are a part of the bride of Christ. And when it says, thus we shall always be with the Lord, I believe that means, thus we shall always be with the Lord. That Jesus takes the whole bride with him. There's never, I mean, who takes a partial bride away from the, the, the altar? Nobody does. You get married, you take the whole bride with you. <laughs> We've got three weddings coming up between now and the end of the year. And I guarantee every single time you go with, you take the whole bride with you when you're, when, I mean, there you go. All right. So positional rewards. And, and so some folks struggle with that, even though the plain language of the Scripture says that when in, in praising John the Baptist, that he was the greatest of those born among women. Among those born among women, there has arisen none greater than John the Baptist. Yet I say unto you, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Now, you want to get on a soapbox and tell me what's not fair? Okay? This is God's design. This is God's design. And this is like, you know, people in this country complaining about poverty. Let me tell you, poverty in the United States of America is wealth almost anywhere else on the planet. Okay? I'll take you to Uganda next time and you want to see some real poverty? Go to Zambia. Go to the Philippines. Say. <laughs> All right. So, it's the Father's good pleasure for different stewardships to have greater 
as opposed to lesser, uh, impact, value, reward, position. And the kingdom of heaven is greater than the Old Testament and the bride of Christ is greater than the kingdom of heaven. Because we are baptized into union with Jesus Christ, God the Son. We are fellow heirs with the heir of all things. So the biggest loser in the church age is greater than the greatest hero of the millennial kingdom. And the greatest hero in the kingdom, or I'm sorry, the biggest loser in the kingdom is greater than the greatest Old Testament saint. Okay, that's not my opinion. That's Jesus who stated that. So positional rewards are conditioned on the faithfulness of Christ, which makes them guaranteed and undiminished in a way that resembles inheritance. From our perspective, they kind of seem guaranteed and not losable, but they're still rewards. So just so we're clear on that. All right. For the church, this judgment is the judgment seat of Christ, 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 15. Other stewardships appear before other judgments. For the church, this judgment is the judgment seat of Christ. Moses will not be standing at the judgment seat of Christ. David, Daniel, no Old Testament saint stands at the judgment seat of Christ. Other stewardships appear before other judgments. Daniel will rise and receive his allotted portion at the end of the age, but that allotted portion will not be assigned to him at the judgment seat of Christ because he's not in the bride of Christ. Daniel is an Old Testament saint. I believe we can find those other judgments uh, in Revelation 20, before and after the millennium, the first resurrection and the second resurrection in verse 4 and in verse 11 of Revelation chapter 20. All right, 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 15, which we've gone through many times. Understand when it comes to this entire chapter, and Corinth was all uh, schismatic and divisive and uh, lifting up one leader versus another. And Paul says, what is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe. This is uh, verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 3. Even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. That's why it's grace. He assigns, you know, one and two and five talents in his wisdom, in his grace. And so Apollos was given a provision. Paul was given a provision. They wanted to stay faithful. They did stay faithful. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So Paul was faithful in his stewardship. Apollos was faithful in his stewardship. Neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. That's why it's grace. If you want to say that you earned that crown, well, who was working in you to willing to do of his good pleasure? God was working in you to willing to do of his good pleasure. So it's by grace that you earned that crown of righteousness. All right, God causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Now we could take this and say, well... Does this have to be limited to the church? Yes. There are concepts that might relate by analogy to Israel and to the Gentiles and to angels and previous stewardships. However, they were not placed into a corporate body the way the church is placed into a corporate body as we are. They were not one with Jesus Christ as we are one with Jesus Christ. And yet even though we are one, we still have individual rewards, personal rewards. 
will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. So specifically, the application of this chapter is the bride of Christ in the church age. According to the grace of God which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Again, requires the church age context. This is only uh, uh, possible here related to the church age. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it. Now the building materials, this is talking about building up one another. This is talking about what we're doing. We are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. So the criteria is the material you're putting into your fellow believers. What Paul and Apollos poured into Corinth. What we pour into one another here at Austin Bible Church. And so are you putting gold into your sister, silver into your brother, precious stones into you know, your fellow members of the body of Christ? Or are you cheating? Are you skimping on the building materials? Because you're trying to keep the treasure for yourself. <clears throat> well, the fire is going to show it. The day will show it because it's to be revealed with fire. The fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And you might gloss it over. You might hide it. People might think you're doing these great things. And you got your pastor fooled and you got your, your wife fooled and whatever else. Well, all that fooling. You're not fooling God. And in the judgment seat, we all get to see it. We watch the fire go up. We watch the, everybody's going to see this. So, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. Whatever I've poured into other believers to edify them will be clearly seen. The fire will hit it and Jesus will say, well done. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Notice you can't lose your salvation. It's, it's testing not whether you're saved or not, it's testing the work you did. The quality of the work that you did. So, and I think the biggest clue, if I can just grab in a larger context over to 4 or 5, when the Lord does this... <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. I don't think I'm wrong to take 4, 5 and connect it to 3, 5 through 15 and to show that that criteria. What is it that divides the good from the bad? What is it that divides the what remains with what's consumed? Because really there's six building materials but they're classified in two ways. They're either purified or they're consumed. You either have a reward or you suffer loss. And so those six categories are really three and three into two broad segments. And it appears that the criteria is from four or five, the criteria is the motivation of your heart. Why did you do what you did? And you could do the same thing the next guy is doing, but you have the wrong motives for doing it. And so while both you and the next guy are doing exactly the same thing, 
you're getting rewards and he's suffering loss. Because your attitude is right and his attitude is wrong. Two people doing the same thing. The same thing at the same place at the same time. But one for right motives and one for wrong motives. And that gets disclosed. That's, that gets disclosed. And then the reward, as it says, each man's praise will come to him from God. And these things I've applied figuratively to Apollos for your sake. So I think I'm not wrong to take four or five and put it back into that, <clears throat> that context related to uh, these things. So that's our judgment. That's our judgment to see to Christ. And I believe it happens on, in heaven. It happens immediately after the rapture. I see no reason why there would be a delay <clears throat> post-rapture. It seems like uh, twinkling of an eye, we're caught up to be with the Lord, and then second twinkling of an eye, we can convene the, uh, the judgment seat of Christ. It doesn't take much longer. And it happens in heaven while there's tribulation for seven years here on earth. Right? Because by the time the tribulation's over and we come back, what happens? We're already dressed in white, riding white horses. We're already made perfect in the sense of our own glorification. So clearly before Revelation 19, we have been judged. We are in our eternal glory at that point. Other stewardships, however, appear before other judgments. Revelation chapter 20. And I'm running out of time, but I'm also running out of voice. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 20, (coughs) and if on my way I can spot us in 1914, the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. So there we are, purified, glorified. We've already gone through the judgment seat of Christ. The fire has already burned away everything that we're going to suffer loss with. So the judgment seat of Christ, I believe, precedes this. Then Revelation chapter 20, judgment day. Satan gets bound for a thousand years and then the first resurrection. Notice in Revelation 20 and verse 4, I saw thrones, plural, and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. Why is judgment given to a plural body? When Jesus said all judgment's been given to the Son. Seems like the son only needs one seat. Ah, but the son has a bride. And there is a corporate body of Christ that is plural that needs multiple thrones. And so we have multiple thrones and they're seated. And judgment was given to them. Do you not know we will judge the world? Do you not know that we will judge angels? Judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image. These are the tribulational martyrs from chapter 6 through 19. They did not receive the mark, the 666, mark of the beast on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now don't confuse this. It so irritates me when I read these sloppy books and they talk about, oh, that's us getting resurrected. That's not us getting resurrected. That's us sitting on those thrones giving judgment over the tribulational martyrs that are being resurrected. And what's the, the whole thing about reigning with Christ for a thousand years? How disappointing is that? I don't reign with Christ for a thousand years. I reign with Christ forever. So do you. This is a temp job. This is one day. This is day labor right here. 
because a thousand years is like a day, a day is like a thousand years. They're gonna, this is the provisional government of the millennial kingdom. They're going to be the, these are the provisional government of the, of the occupied territories. Remember, Jesus conquers at Armageddon. And the millennial kingdom is, uh, is an occupational force in a fallen world of unbelievers. Okay? Anyway, so tribulational martyrs get to become the uh, administrators of the provisional government under martial law in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. We reign with him forever. Big difference. But the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. So this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Then the thousand years are completed. Wow, that went by quickly. Wow, right between verse 6 and verse 7. It's just over, done with like that. And then Satan gets one more Gog, Magog, rebellion. But then there's another judgment down in verse 11. I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. Remember, every knee will bend and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And here's where it happens. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened. So here's the great white throne judgment. So we have the judgment seat of Christ that we stand before, and then we have the first resurrection judgment in verse 4, and then we have the great white throne judgment in verses 11 through 15. And, and keeping these straight, I think, is vital. And blending these things, I think, is, is, is tragic and just lends to more and more confusion. It's given under man once to die, and after that, the judgment. We go to our particular judgments based upon our position, see, all right. So other stewardships appear before other judgments. Well, that's that. We'll come back on Wednesday and we'll be ready to start our final paragraph in uh, Philippians chapter 3, recognizing that our citizenship is in heaven and we have to be on guard against some enemies, enemies of the cross of Christ. We're to observe those uh, who are walking the right walk, and then also observe those who are walking the wrong walk. Wrong walk. And uh, we want to be imitators of the right walk and uh, keep our eyes fixed on heaven above because our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for your truth. I pray for a clear understanding of the verses we've looked at. If there's something this morning that we're not quite clear on that we heard but doesn't quite make sense to us yet, then help us to, uh, to, to chew on it a little bit more. Help us to search the Scriptures and see if these things are so. If, uh, if it needs to simmer a little bit more on the back burner, so to speak, uh, before it's finally ready, then, uh, then bring that about, Father. Uh, help us to continue to consider these things, not because uh, Pastor Bob said so, but because the Bible says so. This is uh, noble-minded to search the Scriptures and see if these things are so. And then when you bring us to the point of conviction, Father, that these crowns are there before us, that we should reach forward for them, we should press on to lay hold of the, uh, the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, Father, I pray now that we will have a better appreciation for what these prizes are all about. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.